So the last time we finished up John's three letters, and today we're going to start First Peter. And we'll start, first of all, as I like to do with every book, an overview of First Peter. Who was it written to? Well, it was uh, written to a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ throughout the Asia Minor area, which we now know as Turkey. Why was it written? To strengthen uh, the believers in face of persecution and trials. And we know it's only by submission and adherence to Christ that we can get through the difficult times in our lives. So really, we live our lives with the perspective of the living hope that we have in Jesus. When was it written? In the A.D. mid-60s. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So we start with Peter's salutation. Who is he addressing? The believers in these provinces in Asia Minor. Uh, pilgrim, some Bibles say strangers. The Greek word is literally an alien alongside or a resident foreigner. Of the dispersion, some Bibles have scattered throughout. Diaspora in the Greek, a seeding. And we know that persecution scattered the believers to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. But there's more to this. As believers, one, adopted into God's family, and two, citizens of heaven, we are resident foreigners. We are pilgrims passing through this earth. So don't get too comfortable here. This isn't our eternal home. And before we speak about those who are suffering, and you know, when Christians hear that we're going to go into First Peter, they're usually comforted uh, as they're going to some type of trial. It ministers to them. But before we get on to those, I really want to address those of us that everything is going well. Everything's going perfect. Your marriage is, is going great. You know, your kids are strong believers. Uh, maybe they got scholarships into college. You know, you're uh, getting ready to retire. You're going on a lot of vacations, going down the shore a lot, right? Things are going really good. Sometimes we have to be careful when that happens because we can lose our perspective. There's an expression that says, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Now, I kind of Googled that and was wondering what it meant in the beginning. But um, what I find is that believers use that expression to make excuses for materialism or a carnal lifestyle. The truth is, the more heavenly minded we are, the more godly we are, the more uh, in tune with God's plans we are, the best, uh, we, we, we have the best situation where we can affect the earth or people here for, for good. Verse 2. The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So this foreknowledge, right, is, it's a prescience. Or in the Greek, the word is prognosis. Sounds familiar. We know that in medicine, there's a, it's a transliteration. It's literally taking from the Greek, letter for letter, uh, for the most part, and brought into the English. Prognosis means a forecast. So in other words, God knew in advance who would come, who would not come. He knew their characters. He knew that Esau would be a man of the flesh. And he knew that Jacob would be a little bit of um, a rascal, but for the most part, he sought the things of God, right? Now, the reform movement will say that it doesn't mean what it says. But we know that this word is, is a component word broken up into its parts. It literally means to know beforehand, right? Because 
elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, some would say, well, we know the word elect means chosen, but some would say that foreknowledge means also, in a sense, chosen. So the elect or the chosen according to the chosen doesn't make sense, right? It has to be predicated upon something. It has to be based on something. It has to be in accordance with something. So otherwise, the word make, means no sense or the phrase. So the elect, God's chosen. And those who respond to God's call of salvation, we also elect God. See, it's a mutual relationship, right? And any relationship, uh, both parties have to choose each other. Otherwise, it's not a relationship. We also know that Israel was God's chosen people. But many of Israel, as the Apostle Paul said, were not of Israel. And many of them perished and uh, didn't go to be with the Lord when they died because of their wickedness, right? So we look at this, the first thing. It says, in sanctification of the Spirit, or to be consecrated, or to be set apart. And we, hopefully, as we grow as Christians, we're more set apart, uh, set apart from our fleshly nature, and set apart for uh, God to use us. And two, for obedience. First John even says that if those say, I know God, but they're not living according to God's word and commandments, then they really don't know God. They're a liar. Obedience is love to God. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we know that the sacrifices back in the Old Testament were a type of Christ. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 24, when the covenant was ratified, not only was the blood sprinkled on the altar, but it was also sprinkled on the people. Pretty amazing. And we see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned here because they all have a part in our salvation. And they're of, they're of the same uh, mind, of course. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. We saw in the Apostle John's letter uh, that this desire is for prospering and continuing in the Lord's work and to glorify him. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Here's your real message of hope, something that no man or organization can bring you or duplicate. And we see multiplied peace in verse 2. We see abundant mercy and living hope in verse 3. And there's a need for these adjectives or modifiers because the Greek and the English can't fully express the blessings of God. They're so amazing that modifiers need to be used for these words. But we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And something that, again, no earthly organization or party or man can provide you. God has begotten us again. And when we're born again, we know we have a new nature, a second nature. And we have God's Holy Spirit residing in us. Peter goes on to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for us. Just going to turn to Matthew 6, starting with verse 19. Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we see that Peter is also building on the foundation that Christ already laid. This is a, uh, an inheritance that's, that's incorruptible, that it can't be stolen, it doesn't decay, it doesn't lose its, lose its value, it can't be lost, and it's reserved in heaven for us. 
What a breath of fresh air, especially in an uncertain economic times. I read the, um, the, uh, the news and it spoke about how it looks like the United States is, even though it looked like we were recovering, but we're headed for another recession. And I got to tell you, as an economics major in college, I can see a lot of the things our government is doing and uh, it, it's kind of unsettling. It's really not good for the economy. But I have no fear because I know that my hope is in a living hope. No matter what the situation is, it's a living hope because it's based on a living God. And it's based on his living word and we know we have a living savior. Even though they killed him and crucified him, on the third day he rose again. And God is the God of the living. And God makes that perfectly clear in his word. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And he gives it in his inheritance while he's still alive. The way we understand inheritance is, is a person uh, has some t type of um, either life insurance or they have some type of assets, and when they die, they dis it's distributed to their progeny. But here, we, have a, we are the king's kids. We serve the living God. And as the king, he gives us his inheritance while he's alive because he cannot die, right? So if nothing else, we should take comfort in knowing these things. Verse 5. who are kept by the power of God, you who are kept by the power of God, you being the antecedent, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept. This is, um, I won't bore you with the long Greek word that it is, but it literally means a garrison within a city. In other words, back in those days, the cities were protected by these strong, tall, thick city walls with these, uh, these gates, right? These heavy gates. But what he, what's saying here, what it means here is that there would often be a garrison that would be inside of the city so that if the, uh, the bad guy was to come in and try to plunder the city and get through the city walls, the garrison would protect the city. So we are kept by God, by the power of God through faith as the vehicle for salvation ready to be revealed. As long as the Lord is the object of that faith, he will be sure to get us safely to the finish line and reveal the incorruptible inheritance for all to see. So what has Peter done up to this point? He's built a foundation. And if we understand, everything else pales in comparison. And in verse 6 he says, In this you greatly rejoice. But that's not the end. There's more. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he switches here now to these trials, now that he's built his foundation in this living hope. All believers face trials, but let, let's not let that steal our rejoicing because it is for a little while when compared to the magnitude of eternity. Now, you may be going, something, going through something for decades, maybe an illness or a type of cancer or uh, you've, uh, one of your loved ones has passed on and for decades you're missing that person. And you may say, easy for you to say, a little while, but now let's look at eternity as we see the, the vastness of eternity and more really understand that, 
this little part of our life becomes a sliver. And the more that time goes on and the more that we're dwelling in eternity, uh, it becomes barely recognizable at one point. So when we look back to the finished work, uh, Christ's finished work on the cross and look forward to the promises of God, the present becomes less scary when we understand these things. And verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith is tested. And that's the purpose in trials. And we've heard the analogy many times of the goldsmith who uh, heats up the gold or the silver or whatever the precious metal is and allows the impurities, the slag, the dross to rise to the top and then they skim it off and discard it and they keep doing that until the, uh, the metal is purified. But something I recently read about some of the ancient eastern goldsmiths knew that they were done and their uh, gold was purified when they could see their reflection in the molten metal. When they could see a clear reflection and believers who have often been through the fire, I can see Jesus reflected when I look at them and they've come through it successfully. This is amazing. You, you can picture Jesus Christ looking down as if we were the molten metal, our faith in the smelting pot. And the more Jesus works with it, right, and allows these things to happen in our lives, he looks down and the more he can see his reflection, the more he's pleased, whether it be our faith or our lifestyle, right? And that's a, a tested faith. Others, unfortunately, will use every means necessary of the world to avoid trials and maybe even sometimes resort to worldly or carnal means to get themselves out of trials. And they're completely missing the point. They're spiritually unprepared. The Bible says after testing and maturity, our faith is found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith becomes impressive because of him, right? We do so many things to make ourselves look good. I'm sure everyone here before you came to church today looked in the mirror and fixed yourself up, and you all look great. But when it comes to our faith and our lifestyles, its goal is to bring praise and honor to the Lord, and that should be the goal in our lives. As believers, we should be little mirrors that we reflect Jesus no matter where we go and to glorify him. Usually uh, at funerals, Psalm 23 is, is read. But in the verse 3, it says something interesting. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even everything he does, when he allows us to look good or to come through and, and uh, go through these trials well, the goal is to make the Lord look good, not for us to look good. If we want to look good and we want people to brag on us and think that others think that we're super spiritual, we're missing the point because the job is to make the Lord look good. Verse 8, Jesus, whom having not seen, we love. And how could we not? When he woos us with his love, when he's already taken the first step in uh, sending the flowers and the candy and the cards and um, really, in, in essence, giving up his life for me to die for my sins. I have to tell you, I'm completely smitten by him. I've never met him tangibly, but I love him, you know? Even doubting Thomas, you know, Jesus said, Thomas, you've seen and believe. Blessed are those who will believe, although they haven't seen. And that, that's us believers, brothers and sisters. It's pretty, pretty neat. The second one, though we do not see him, we believe. And then third, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Sometimes when we don't have joy, maybe our eyes are too focused on our own circumstances. Even looking at this trial that First Peter speaks about in your life, Right? Is the goal to focus on our circumstances? No. It'll just put us more into a tailspin. 
The goal is to focus on what Jesus did for us at the cross and to see what the end is going to bring for us. Again, the focus has to be proper. And just a, a, a note uh, on relationship. You know, think about any relationship in your life, maybe you're with your spouse or you know, even your child. When your child is born and, and it's so neat to watch them grow and you develop that, uh, that relationship with them and they start to respond to you as their parent. But think about how you feel or you, how you felt when, uh, you know, that, that first relationship that really wowed you. You know, you, you get the adrenaline rush and you're, you know, you get nervous, but it's a good nervous and you, you're just madly in love with that person. And your whole desire is to just uh, talk to them on the phone or go on a date or whatever the case may be. It's a new relationship. Now let's look at our relationship with the Lord. I have to tell you that uh, when I first met the Lord and I first got saved and, you know, I really understood his love for me, I, I had that same feeling. You know, I went up and I was nervous and, you know, I wanted to receive him and I, I just couldn't wait to go back to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and you know, take Bible classes and read my Bible and share my faith with others. I just was so excited about my relationship with the Lord. But sometimes with believers over the years, the relationship gets stale. And it's not the Lord's fault. You know, you can see earthly relationships kind of wane and get stale. But it's even worse when a relationship with the Lord gets stale. And again, it's not the Lord's fault. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, when he's speaking to the church of Ephesus, he says to the church, wow, you know, you guys got a lot going on. And I'm paraphrasing, you know, you got events, you got, uh, you know, you give to the poor, you can't tolerate those that are evil. And he goes on and on about how they're uh, a great church, right? Their faith, their love, their patience. He says, but this I have against you, you left your first love. They left the first and most important relationship with Jesus Christ. They let it get stale. And Jesus tells them to repent, to change directions. He rebukes them. Go back to where, you know, you, you left that relationship and, and go first and do, do the things at first, right? And there may be some believers here today who maybe their relationship with the Lord uh, has gotten a little stale. And I would just encourage you to, to really change, you know, repent and uh, go back and see where you left the Lord and uh, fall back in love with him, right? Rekindle that romance. Verse 9. He says, receiving the end of our faith, our salvation, which is that finish line experience, right? Uh, and we know that this word receiving is in the present tense. And what's really cool is, again, we look to the cross, we look forward to the promises that will become a tangible reality. But in the meantime, we experience God growing us and maturing us as we move from uh, the cross to uh, his second coming, right? So we have a down payment, and we look forward to full redemption, but in the meantime, God is working on our lives, right? Verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who is in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that would follow. The prophets, and it's amazing, they would write these things down, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, uh, you know, Obadiah and, you know, you can name all the different prophets. And God would speak to them, some audibly, some through his spirit, and they would pen their prophetic writings, right? They would, thus saith the Lord, now what is the Lord saying to you right now? And also uh, future prophecies that would later come true. 
And uh, I could really picture Isaiah, you know, writing Isaiah 53, the suffering Messiah. And as he's writing, he must have so many questions, you know. Um, and again, having little pieces of the puzzle here and there. And as we go forward to some of the latter prophets, having the writings of the former prophets, and still desiring the full picture, although they have more puzzle pieces. Pretty mind-blowing if you think about it. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 16 to the disciples, he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Of course, Jesus is speaking of himself fulfilling hundreds of these prophecies in their midst, in their presence. It's pretty impressive. It also says, well, let me jump to verse 12 here and finish it off. The last verse that we're going to cover today. He says, to them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been purported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. It's amazing in itself. Even angels at the edge of their seats Right? The time leading up to Jesus coming to the earth and then rejoicing. Right? Goodwill towards men. Right? Peace on earth. Uh, and then seeing the plan of redemption start to fall into place. Seeing the, uh, the Messiah be uh, you know, beat up and tortured and hung on the cross. And you know, they must have wondered about that. And then you know, him die and be buried and then rise again on the third day. And then the, you know, Jesus builds the foundation of the church and the prophets and the apostles uh, built on that foundation, and, and then we know we can also look forward to. It must have been amazing. Right? It must be, and we know that the Bible says that the angels rejoice when one sinner comes to salvation. Prophets and the angels and the heavenly host have faced, and you, you can almost see their faces pressed up against the glass peering into this age, the age of grace. Because that word, uh, the angels desired to look into, literally means to, uh, to peer within or, or, or lean over and look. It's, it's an interesting word. Again, it it's kind of reminds me of those uh, medical shows where you have these uh, surgeons, these crackerjack surgeons who are doing these amazing, you know, 10-hour operations. And uh, the med students are kind of up in the balcony and there's glass all around. And they just, they just are in awe of the surgeons. Wow, what a master that guy is with the scalpel. And the same word, you could picture the angels and the heavenly host peering down at the earth and seeing what's going on, this age of grace, the church age, right? The, uh, the resurrection of the Messiah, the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon men, and then waiting to see what's, what soon is going to take place with the second coming. It must have completely, must still blow them away. And if you know anything about God's word and the time that we're living in, there's no way that you could say your life is boring. If you're sitting here today and you think that your life is boring as a believer, you're focused on the wrong things. Get on the train. Get off the platform. I mean, it's just amazing things, prophecies being f fulfilled in our times, and really not a whole lot left to be fulfilled, right, before the Lord uh, can come back in his second coming. We know that there's really no um, prophecies left that have to take place for the Lord to return for his people in the rapture. And what's really sad, though, is looking at all this, I mean, this is amazing. It just is so exciting to, to be living in this time. It's so exciting to be living in the church age, in the age of grace. I've dealt with so many that look for peace in their lives, looking for hope in a hopeless world. And some of you even related to me that 
You know, it just can't be that easy as trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It's too simple. And then they fall right back into their unfulfilled lives. Well, I've got to tell you, the Bible says that God wants you to have peace in your life. He wants you to have hope, real hope, a living hope, a dynamic hope. It's fluid. It doesn't sit still. It's not static. And it gets stronger with each passing day as we get closer to eternity. God wants us to have treasures in heaven. He wants us to have that inheritance that's kept for us and that nobody can take. He wants to give it to us. And he wants to be there with us through the dark times in our lives, those trials that Peter speaks about, and continue to grow our faith. He wants believers to continue to have the proper perspective. We are all citizens of heaven and aliens here, as we we saw in the beginning. And when we focus on our heavenly abode, it keeps everything else in perspective. But most of all, he wants, he desires an ongoing relationship with you. But he won't force you. He's a gentleman, right? It's clear that he draws us in many ways, one of which is found in his word that you're reading today. So I would just like to leave you with this. Let his word take root in your heart and work. And if you are a believer and you've allowed that relationship with your Lord and Savior to get stale, I encourage you, rekindle the fire in your heart that you once had for him. Let's pray.